Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Well, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, it truly is the greatest of all blessings to be part of the communion of saints and to have the great privilege to gather together not just in the name of Jesus, but in the life of Jesus, as sharers in him and so as sharers in one another. Father, it's hard to even put into words what it is that you have accomplished in the triumph in Jesus our Lord. We fall short every time we try to contemplate these things and certainly to put them into words. And I know how much in this week my own heart has been full and grappled with profound ideas, overwhelming ideas, and the struggle to even get my own head around these things, to bring them to your saints in a way that will be understandable and enriching. Father, a way that will minister to their faith and their joy. And I pray that you would attend in that way, that you would give me clarity and a proper sort of simplicity that Your glory in the face of Christ will not be lost upon us in this day. Minister to us. Build us up, Father, in this most holy faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two things kind of uh, came together in my mind this week. Uh, First, the fact of of our entrance into Hebrews 11 in this section on faith and faithfulness, but also just the fact that this is a Memorial Day weekend, a time when we remember those who've given their lives for the sake of, of our freedoms, for the sake of our country. And I think often Memorial Day, um, for that reason, leads our minds back to Jesus and his self-sacrifice. The fact that he has purchased a greater freedom than simply our national freedom or uh, the, the, the liberty and rights that we enjoy as Americans. And I know personally, I don't know about you all, but I know personally I've heard many of those sorts of messages over the years of uh, Memorial Day messages that are tied to Jesus, the one who died, that we would be set free. 
And, and I want to, in a sense, uh, flesh out that idea of remembrance or thinking back on Jesus, but perhaps uh, in a way that we don't often think of. And I know I'm not going to say anything today that we haven't heard many times, but, but this whole pastoral mandate of reminder, reminder, remembrance is a very important thing. And I hope that, that in, in opening this up a little bit today, that, that perhaps it will take our, our thoughts and our affections uh, to a deeper place, to a more enriching place. Uh, what I want to do today is to open up Paul's own exhortation to Timothy, his exhortation to Timothy to remember Jesus. And even though we're not continuing in Hebrews 11 today, this very much fits in seamlessly with where we're going in Hebrews and even the introduction that we did to this this issue of faith and faithfulness. And I hope that you'll see that as we continue through this. Hopefully this will also do its part uh, today as we move forward in Hebrews in in helping to also lay a a greater foundation for our contemplation of, of all of these faithful uh, that, that went before the Messiah and that have since come since his coming. So turn with me, if you will, to Second Timothy chapter 2. And again, this is Paul's exhortation to Timothy, but one that he intended that Timothy would uh, press uh, out to those who were under his charge. Paul penned this letter to Timothy, but as Timothy was, in a sense, carrying out or administering Paul's own apostolic oversight and certainly his care over a community of believers. And so he intended that this exhortation, though it comes to Timothy, would be one uh, that would be through Timothy brought to all the saints. And therefore, it properly applies to us. He says in verse 8, remember Jesus the Messiah. Remember Jesus, the Messiah, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. There's a year worth of contemplation and consideration just in that alone. But that's where he begins. And then he says, for which or in which, according to my gospel, in which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, And yet, the word of God is not in prison. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. For it is a trustworthy statement, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things. And then he says, and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which are useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. But again, verse 14a, remind them of these things. 
This is an exhortation that applies to all the saints in every generation. And so I've titled this, The Enduring Obligation of Remembrance. The Enduring Obligation of Remembrance. And I want to treat it just under the two basic sections of the object of remembrance and then the purpose of remembrance. Why is this important? Why do we, why do we remember Jesus in the way that Paul presents him? Well, the first thing then is with respect to the object of remembrance, he's obviously saying, remember Jesus. But Jesus is just a word, right? What we see on the page, Jesus is just a word. It's a sound symbol. It's a written symbol. Obviously, it's important to answer the question, okay, who is this Jesus? What about Jesus? And he says, remember Jesus, the Messiah. That word Christos is Messiah. According to my gospel. And as I said, that's an infinitely dense idea in itself. But it ought, at the very least in our minds, say that this Jesus that we're to remember is the Jesus disclosed in the scriptures as the Messiah. With all that that implies and all that that entails. And, and we know here through many years that this messianic uh, idea and, and the content of it is something that is developed by God through the scriptures in the midst of the Israelite history from the very beginning. Remember Jesus, the one who is the Messiah, the Messiah promised to Israel, the Messiah promised by God, the Messiah who God revealed and disclosed through many, many centuries leading up to the time of the birth of Jesus himself. And Paul says, that is the Jesus, the messianic person who I have brought to you in my gospel. The good news that Jesus himself proclaimed, the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news that God had arisen and done what he had said he was going to do from the very beginning. That gospel of that Messiah, that's the one that I want you to remember. And he says two things about him, not just that these are the only two things that matter, but they're very much touchstone issues in this idea of Jesus the Messiah, the one who was proclaimed in the gospel, first by Jesus himself, the gospel of the kingdom, and then by those who were sent out to perpetuate that message and that mission. Two things that are of crucial importance, and the first is that He is the one raised from the dead. The one raised from the dead. And among other things, the idea of resurrection is the attestation of the sonship of Jesus. Think of Romans 1. Jesus of Nazareth attested to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So all of the things that we can think about and poured into this idea of resurrection or Jesus' resurrection, at the center of it is this idea of sonship. Jesus is, by the resurrection, we see him to be the faithful son who came into the world to accomplish the Father's will. 
the will that the Father had made known from Genesis 1 through the whole of the salvation history. He came into the world to do that work. And he said it over and over again. This is throughout the Gospels, but John 4 comes to mind where they're saying, here, Jesus, here's some food and eat. And he says, I have food that you know nothing about. Well, where did you get food? We don't see. And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete the work that he has commissioned to me, the work that he has given me to complete. And that work As we know, if we know the gospel of the kingdom, if we know the messianic revelation, if we know the the revealing and disclosing and explanation of the Messiah and the messianic work throughout the scriptures, that work involved the banishing of the curse. The renewing and reconciling of the creation to God. The messianic work was to banish the curse, end alienation, heal, restore all things back to God, in order that God should, according to his own eternal design, be all in all, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. That God should inhabit and permeate and fill his creation with his presence in a way that there is the exhaustive, perfect, consummate intimacy between creator and creation that God intended from the very beginning. That was the messianic mission. That was the messianic vocation. That was the messianic work. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, this God who had accomplished that work in the Messiah is now administering that triumph unto what end? That he would sum up everything in the heavens and the earth In Jesus himself. So he is the faithful son who accomplished the father's will. But he is also in this idea of resurrection. He is the ascended glorified son who is the last Adam. We've seen this throughout the epistle to the Hebrews. It's not just that Jesus triumphed, he triumphed as man unto mankind and ultimately unto the whole created order. He was resurrected as the first fruits from the dead. He is the first fruits of God's new creation. He was resurrected as the true image son who now by his spirit is gathering to his father a whole new human family of image children who share in his own life. Ephesians 2, right? When we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ, seated us in the heavenly realm in him. You died, your lives are hidden with Christ in God. So resurrection deals with this idea of sonship, but not just with respect to Jesus himself, but with respect to the Father's design to have a whole human family of sons and daughters. He is son unto the sons of God. The second thing that he tells us, which is very important in the messianic definition and work, is that he is the descendant of David. And I think we all know that that's not merely just, okay, what was Jesus' biological heritage? Well, he was descended from David. Davidic lineage is 
at the heart of the messianic credential and the messianic work, right? Think of the way Matthew introduces Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David. And at the heart of the Davidic idea is this idea of kingship. And hopefully, again, I'm not saying anything that we don't all know. We, We know that the central place of David is bound up in the covenant God made with David, that a son of his would sit on his throne. David's house, throne, and kingdom were going away. Israel could not fulfill its mandate. But God would restore and he would uh, reestablish David's house and throne and kingdom and reconstitute David's kingdom people, the household of Israel, in the seed to come from him. So the idea of, of kingship, of kingdom, of reign, of royal triumph, that's at the heart of this idea of Jesus as the son of David. His resurrection, again taking us back to Hebrews, his resurrection was unto his attainment of the human status and the vocation for which God created the human being, the human creature. Kingship, priesthood. Kingship, priesthood. And David fulfilled both of those roles in his own way. And I don't, I'm not going to go back and rehearse all of that. But in the idea of Jesus as descendant of David is this idea of kingship, but kingship as it implicates this idea of priesthood. We saw in Zechariah how God had said that these two streams of messianic significance, Messiah in a priestly sense, Messiah in a kingly sense, that they would converge in this one individual. Zechariah 6, the crowning of the high priest. Behold branch, the branch of David. He will build my house and he will preside as a priest upon his throne. The bringing together of the kingship and the priesthood in the Messiah himself. And we've seen in Hebrews how the Melchizedek idea, this king-priest, king of Salem, priest of God most high, again converges in the Messiah himself. He attains that destiny and status by his resurrection as a son of David for which man was created. Man as royal image son. Man as the one who administers God's lordship, God's wise, benevolent, loving lordship over his world. As steward of God's world, summing up the praises of the creation back to God, mediating the relationship between God and his creation. Man as image son, man as regal priest. And so Jesus... uh, Resurrection as son of Adam ultimately speaks to his glorification, his enthronement, God fulfilling his promise to establish David's house and throne and kingdom in this descendant of his. It's Pentecost, right? Isn't that what Peter says? Let the whole house of Israel know that God has made him Lord in Christ by raising him from the dead. Descendant of David, David himself said, The Lord will not suffer my Holy One to undergo decay. He is both Lord and Christ. 
And that glorification refers to his enthronement as true man, man through whom God manifests and and administers his own power and rule over all things. Hence, Jesus' proclamation after his resurrection, as he's ready to be enthroned, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth. Go, therefore. Carry out this dominion of mine. Be instruments, agents of this dominion of mine. Make disciples of all nations. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. We call that the Great Commission. But it was really just the Abrahamic mandate of through you all the families of the earth will be blessed being carried out through the new Abrahamic family that Jesus was constituting in himself. So the remembrance is Jesus, the Messiah. What Messiah? The Messiah revealed in the scriptures, the Messiah proclaimed in Paul's gospel, the Messiah who is raised from the dead with all that implies and entails, the Messiah who is the descendant of David. That's the one who is to be remembered as a perpetual contemplation. But secondly, as I said, the purpose. Why? What does it matter? What's the reason? What's the purpose for this remembrance? Well, hopefully at this point, it's already evident that this idea of remembering Jesus has massive implications. Paul isn't just saying, recall to mind some facts about this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. That he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on a cross for sinners. That if you believe in him, you get to go to heaven. Remember those facts and then get on with your day. That's not what he's saying. The issue is not facts concerning um, this man named Jesus, but the significance of those truths. The significance of those truths. Jesus, as Messiah, has cosmic significance. You've heard me say it many times before. You know, I can't even count the number of times over the years that people have asked me, uh, you know, do you believe in limited atonement? And, and I always take him to the same place and say, if we don't start with the right understanding of the universality of atonement, we can't even talk about this idea of limited atonement or, or universal atonement in the way that you're thinking of. Because the atonement had cosmic significance, a cosmic purpose the reconciling of all things in the heavens and the earth back to God. As human beings, we're so man-centered and so self-centered that all we care about is, does the atonement apply to me? When really the issue is that the atonement is God's dealing with the problem of creational alienation, creational death, creational estrangement, the curse And therefore, the implication of Jesus as Messiah is cosmic in its scope. It's not just about whether I'm saved, whether I'm going to heaven. It's about God's intent for his creation. And so the very assertion to say, Jesus the Messiah, what's bound up in that is, is it embodies in itself an all-comprehending 
body of truth that the scriptures attest, that was Paul's gospel, and that all-comprehending body of truth, and we say Jesus the Messiah, we are in just saying that, we are establishing that every created thing is subject to that truth, and every created thing is accountable to that truth. If we can take those words, Jesus the Messiah, into our mouth, we have established not only our personal subjection to him and the truth wrapped up into that, but and not only our personal accountability, but every created thing's accountability. So the truth of Jesus as Messiah embodies the truth of creational renewal. If Jesus is the Messiah that the scriptures disclose, not what we may think Messiah means, but if he is the Messiah of the scriptures, if he is the son of God in that way, as son of Eve, son of Abraham, son of David, and if God has affirmed that by raising him from the dead, and Paul says that, so as to have him sit at the right hand of power as the son of David, the enthroned son of David, then God has judged and condemned the fallen creation and its curse. God has judged and condemned the world as we know it the created order as we know it, as we experience it. And he has inaugurated his kingdom, his new creational kingdom, that he was building the case for all along, that he was describing, that he was promising. What ultimately looks to a new heavens and a new earth. But if Jesus is the Messiah raised from the dead, son of David, then he has inaugurated this new creation. He has condemned and in a substantial way put to death the former order of things. This is why Paul thought in terms of the age that was, the age that has come, the age that was, the age that has come. And I, I cite all the time from 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul again says, if Christ died in the way that the scriptures say he died, the significance of his death, then his death is the death of all. And if he was raised from the dead, then it's such that all who share in that life no longer have the life they had before. They no longer exist according to the former pattern that they have known. In Paul's words, they no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and lives and was raised on their behalf. And he says, therefore, I don't think of anything in the way I did before. I don't think of any human being in the way I did before. There was a way that I thought even of the Messiah. There was a way that I thought of Jesus in relation to this idea of Messiah. But I do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, new creation... The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. That is the Messiah of Paul's gospel. The Messiah promised in all the scriptures. 
And the point then is simply this. The resurrection, the death and the resurrection, the resurrection as culminating, bringing to a climactic um, endpoint the, the meaning of the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus has changed everything. It's changed everything. Everything. Now, we don't yet with our eyes see everything changed, but it doesn't change the fact that it has. Paul said we cannot look at anything in life, including ourselves, through the same set of eyes in view of the resurrection of the Messiah. It has changed everything. And so remembering Jesus, the Messiah, isn't simply recalling to mind historical facts about him. And it's not simply reflecting on him in some kind of a subjective, whimsical way. You know, even reflected in a lot of our contemporary music. Jesus, Jesus, you're so good. I love you so much. Well, who is he? I don't know, but I love him and he's so good, right? It's not that sort of reflection on him. Remembering Jesus, the Messiah, is owning the reality of new creation, consciously, intentionally, by way of a disciplined way of thinking and living, it is owning the reality of new creation. The new creation is proclaimed in the gospel, revealed in the scriptures. The new creation that Jesus has inaugurated and that he presides over as Lord and Messiah. And also... Remembering Jesus in that way means us recalling and owning our own relationship to that new creation, our own relationship to Jesus himself. So the foundation for this remembrance, when Paul tells Timothy, remember Jesus the Messiah, the basis of that is living union with the Messiah, right? We can't own this reality of new creation without first entering into it. We can't remember Jesus in that way without first having a living union with him, passing out of death into life so as to become image children in him, to become the kind of human beings that God created us to be, to be sharers in his new creation, his renewal as the last Adam. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh is not the same life. It's a life that's grounded in the faithfulness of the Messiah who died, who gave himself for me. So faith in Jesus, then, is not believing a catalog of theological propositions or traditional dogma or personal speculations or what my my grandpappy said or what my neighbor said or even what my preacher said. Faith in Jesus is owning the resurrection life that we have in him. 
It's becoming sharers in his resurrection life. Faith in Jesus, that's a sense in which we can say faith is grounded in the saving work of God. And new life, this new life, this new way of being human beings defined by Jesus himself, that new way of life entails living out his life. Remember again, Paul didn't say, I have Jesus in my heart. I have Jesus in my life. He said, Jesus is life. And Jesus himself said that in the bread of life section, right? Unless you eat the, 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 uh, the body of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He is life. And so living the Christian life, living out our faith, entails living out his life. That's the sense in which we can say faithfulness is the life of faith. How did Paul deal with issues of infirmity and failure and sin and foolishness uh, with respect to the Corinthians? He didn't say, well, let's go back and find a verse in the Old Testament that says, here's a commandment, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, do do this, do do this, do do the other thing. It was always the same thing, calling them back to remember who they were in him. The heart of remembering Jesus as it applies to us is not, again, recalling facts about him, but re-engaging our minds and our hearts and our persons with the truth as it is in him and our share in that. Paul would say, don't you know who you are? He didn't say, don't bring lawsuits. He said, don't you know who you are? Don't you know we're going to judge the world? Don't you know we're going to judge angels? Isn't there someone among you who can help reconcile these differences? And I don't care whether you prevail in court or not. I don't care if the law is on your side. I don't care if you're vindicated by a judge. You are condemned in the fact that you deal with this situation with a natural mind. It would be better to be wronged and defrauded than to deal with things in that sort of a way. Issues of sexual impurity. He said, don't you know who you are? Are you going to join Christ to a harlot? He didn't say, don't behave badly in a sexual way. He said, don't you know that Christ is your life? Don't you know that you, that the church, and you individually, but the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all? Don't you know that the life you live is Christ living that life in and through you? Don't you know that? Faithfulness is the life of faith. Thomas Torrance says this, the church, and this means the the members of Christ's body, the church has no independent existence or any life or any power of its own apart from what is unceasingly communicated to it through its union and communion with Christ. He doesn't say it here, but he says elsewhere, and rightfully so, in the truest, most substantial sense, Christ is the church, because it is his fullness. 
the life that it has, the existence that it has, the work that it has, the power that it has, is what is unceasingly communicated to it through union and communion with the Messiah who dwells in it by the power of the Spirit, filling it with the eternal life and love of God himself. It is quickened and born of that spirit, filled, directed by the spirit. But in order that the church should be rooted, grounded, built up in Jesus the Messiah, grounded in his incarnate being and mission, in order that it may be determined in its own inner and outer life through participation in his life and ministry. He's saying what we are inside of ourselves and what we are outside of ourselves is determined and defined by who Christ is in himself and what his mission and work is. There is nothing of us except for that. And I could go on, but I'll stop with that. But this is a huge idea, saints. When he says, remember Jesus the Messiah... This is a calling of us back. It's really a call to repentance in the right sort of way, a rethinking. Think again. Think again. Who is this one? Who are you in him? What does faith and faithfulness look like? So Paul says then, for which or in which, And that's an important distinction in verse 9. According to my gospel, in which, he doesn't say for which, he says in which, in the context of which, myself being defined and existing within the truth of this gospel, it brings a consequence to my life. It's in the context of this gospel of Jesus the Messiah that I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not in prison. And because the word of God is not in prison, I endure all things. I understand that it's not just that God's gospel is not in prison, but that it's doing its work. And therefore, I endure all things for the sake of those whom God will gather in through the power of the gospel by the Spirit. Paul says that this remembrance of Jesus provokes faithfulness. Faithfulness that, as I said, is conformity to the reality of the new creational life, the life of Jesus himself that is true of us if we are his people. But that life of new creation is lived out in the context of a world that's still hostile to him. I've said many times, Christians are the only human beings that inhabit two worlds at the same time. We are raised up in the Messiah, seated in the heavenly realm in him. It's not about place, it's about manner of existence. It's about state of being. We are sharers in the resurrection life of the Messiah, and therefore we are a part of this thing in which everything is changed. And yet we still live as mortal human beings, temporal beings in this, this world that we know, in which we work and sleep and eat and, and do all the things that human beings do. Well, what's the point? 
this faithfulness as the, as the authentic life of new creation in the context of a world that is still groaning, waiting for its own share in that new creation, creates a contradiction, right? It creates a contradiction. And therefore, this thing of faithfulness always comes at personal cost, what Paul calls suffering, Suffering in all forms. And he's not so much talking about the suffering of getting sick or the suffering of, you know, the difficulties that we have in this world because of just life in this world. He's talking about suffering that, that comes because of the contradiction between who we are and what the world is. It's what Jesus said when he said, because you are no longer of this world, you are not out of it in the sense that you, you, you no longer are a part of its way and its, its, its manner of being and its manner of doing and thinking. I have chosen you out of this world, therefore the world hates you because it hated me first. If it hates me, it hates you. If it holds to my teaching, it'll hold to your teaching. Why? Because you are me in the world. There is a fundamental contradiction between what it is to be in Christ and what it is to live in this world. And that contradiction sets up opposition and conflict and hostility, resentment. Even if you're never sick a day in your life, never if you, even if you never lose anyone that you love, or even if you never have a financial downturn, or you never have any of the things that we call the sufferings of this life, you will still be in this place of suffering if you live a faithful life. All who will live godly in Christ Jesus will encounter that, Paul said, right? He says it later in this very epistle because of this principle of contradiction. It's in this gospel that I suffer, Paul says, in the gospel, in the context, living out in the truth of the gospel puts me in this place of suffering. Because again, this new creation is already, but not yet. But that means also that our faithfulness is not just, okay, I'm going to try to be a better person. I'm going to you know, read my Bible more. or you know, I'm, I'm going to be faithful in some kind of nebulous way. This is about a, a, a mindful, wise, intentional, purposeful ownership of what has come in the Messiah. It is directed, our faithfulness, saints, must be directed towards God's goal for his creation into which we are woven. People often don't go any farther than thinking, if you ask people, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is the Christian life all about? Well, you know, Jesus, I've broken God's law or, you know, committed some sins and Jesus died for for me and he died to to take away sins. And if I believe in him, uh, then, then I'll be forgiven and I get to go to heaven. That doesn't say anything about purposefulness in faithfulness. It doesn't say anything about what it is to really live in view and in sync with what God is doing. What it is to be scripted into his program and his plan, to be about what he's about. 
faithfulness is grounded in living union with Jesus. It presupposes participation in his death and in his resurrection. It's defined and it's empowered by participating in his death and his resurrection. But it's in this context of, again, already but not yet, working towards a goal, moving towards a goal. Go back again and read Philippians 3. Paul doesn't say, I'm trying to be a better person. I was a Pharisee. That was legalism. Forget that. Now I'm going to be justified by faith. Full stop. End of discussion. I want to know him. I want to, in being conformed to him, in living with his life and his mind, finding myself sustaining the very sufferings that he sustained as a man living in contradiction with the world and alienation to God. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in that way, and so to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I haven't already attained all this. I haven't already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. There's a purpose in this, saints. We're not just treading water till we can go off to heaven. Trying to have as comfortable or easy or undisturbed of a life as we can possibly have. Until Jesus snatches us off to the big house in heaven. There is a purpose in this thing called life in Christ. Faithfulness is the life of faith. And that's true even, again, of of this resurrection life that we have. Yes, we're raised up in the Messiah. Yes, we're sharers in him. But unto the goal, Romans 8, of the resurrection of the body and the renewal of all things. The creation itself is waiting for the manifesting of the sons of God in that way. Because when we are made consummately complete in the Messiah in that day, then the creation itself will enter into its own renewal. We live in hope. We live in that faith. We live faithfully, laboring, as Paul said, towards that day of consummation. And that day of consummation is not personal bliss in heaven with a healthy body that never gets sick and my knees don't bother me anymore. It's the full renewal of our humanness to share consummately in the life and the likeness of God. The life and the likeness of God that are in the Messiah to share in the words of the author of Hebrews, to share in as joint heirs, as Paul says, but Hebrews also in the inheritance that is in the Messiah himself. Our destiny is to be heirs of all that Jesus has inherited. If his inheritance is the full glory, the effulgence of human glory according to God's purposes, then our share as co-heirs with him is that, priests and kings to our God. That's the sense, and why do I say all of that? I'm not trying to get off track, but Paul says in verse 11, it is a trustworthy statement. This is true. You need to know this. You need to remember this. You need to hold tightly to this. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Future glory is the result of 
present endurance. And Christians often think of it as a reward system. It's like, okay, if I'm willing to stick my neck in the yoke now and, you know, suffer, then, then once I've suffered enough, then God will be happy and then, then, then I'll get to go off to heaven. If I'm willing to suffer now, then it's for a good reward, you know, like Islam. I'll, I'll forego all of these good things in this life, all these earthly pleasures, because that I get them in abundance when I get off to heaven. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that the inheritance that awaits comes to those who endure in the sense that endurance is simply what it looks like to live the Christian life. Living faithfully in the context of contradiction is axiomatic for what it looks like to be Christians, and those are the ones who have the inheritance waiting for them. It's not a do this, then I'll give you this. It's, it's that this is the apex. This is the consummation of what now you are presently. It's the life of Christ now that looks like suffering in the context of contradiction, and the life of Christ then looks like the glory of the full inheritance. It's not this unto that. It's all about Christ as our life and what that looks like in this world, but where it's going, what it will ultimately result in. Sharing in Jesus' resurrection creates contradiction and suffering, but it also establishes the promise. The promise that the present communion that we have with God will be fully realized. Heaven is not a place. It's it's the full realization of the intimacy that we have with God now. Jesus said, you want to understand what's going to come at Calvary? My Father and I will come and make our abode with you. In that day, you will understand that I am in you, you are in me, right? I am in the Father, you are in me. It's this establishing of intimate communion between God and his creation with human beings at the center. And what we call heaven is just the realization of that in fullness. It's not about a place. It's not about the best of all possible worlds as I imagine it. It's purely about the completion of God's intent for his human creature, what it is to be fully taken up in the life of God in Christ by the Spirit. And that consummate destiny, that that outcome, will see the human destiny realized as well, which is what? Priests and kings to our God. That's why Paul says, if we endure, we shall reign with him. Again, not as a reward. If you suffer now, if you do the right thing now, you know, like, like you tell your, your children, if you'll mow the lawn, I'll give you $5. Or you can, you know, I'll go buy you an ice cream cone or whatever it happens to be. It's not a reward like that. It's that the life of the image children now in this world will be fully, consummately realized in the glorification of the last day. Think again of Revelation 5 in that great heavenly scene. The doxology to the Lamb who breaks the seals and opens them. 
you have purchased with your blood for God men of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, and you've made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. The promise of the reign is simply the promise that the God who is with us now, the God in whom we have our life, the God in whom we have our faithfulness is the God who will fully, fully realize his purpose. Not just for us, not just in us, but in his whole creation as we fit into that scheme. That's what Romans 8 is all about. That's at the very heart of Paul's gospel everywhere. Well, I want to conclude then just by uh, drawing out the last piece of this um, where he talks about this issue of denial. Denial. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Paul is, in, in calling Timothy to remember Jesus, he's calling for a renewed conscious adherence to the truth of the Messiah and to embrace what will come with that, what will come, the faithfulness to the truth of one's own share in the Messiah, the suffering, the need for perseverance. But he's also warning against unfaithfulness. And the point, my fundamental point here is that faithfulness and denial are opposite sides of the same coin. Faithfulness and denial are opposite sides of the same coin. Faithfulness in the way that I've defined it. They represent the two possible relations that a person can have to the truth as it is in Jesus, the Messiah revealed in the scriptures. Faithfulness, denial. Embracing and conforming our lives, our minds, conforming our lives to the truth of what God has accomplished in the Messiah and where all of this is going is the very definition of faithfulness. As I said, faithfulness is simply the life of faith. It doesn't pertain to our conduct in the first instance. You can behave properly and be unfaithful, right? Faithfulness is the conformity of our lives to the truth. It begins up here, not in the way we behave. It's the integrity of a life in which the whole pattern of life conforms to our share in Jesus, the resurrected son of David. Well, as I said, denial is the opposite side of that coin. So denying Jesus is failure in that respect. And what that means is it doesn't necessarily involve overt rejection. We think, okay, denying Jesus means that I'm going to say, I don't believe in him. I don't believe any of this Christian stuff. I'm, you know, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic or I'm not religious or, or I'm a Muslim or I'm a Jew or whatever it happens to be. I don't believe in Jesus. That's not what this idea of denial is about. It's not even really about us walking away from our declared faith in him, our profession of faith, if you will. It also doesn't imply that somehow we've wandered away from good doctrine to bad doctrine. Denial doesn't necessarily mean any of those things. It could involve some of those things, but 
that's not what it's about. Paul is dealing with this idea of denial, as I said, as the other side of faithfulness, the opposite side of that coin. He's concerned with this issue of contradiction that is nonconformity. If faithfulness is owning and conforming to the truth, as it is in Jesus, denial is the absence of that conformity. It involves living a life that contradicts the truth of who Jesus is, what he accomplished, what he's inaugurated, what God's goal is in the Messiah, and what it means to even be related to him. Our place, our vocation within that accomplishment. It's contradicting the truth of that. That's how Paul can say that our faithlessness does not alter God's faithfulness or Christ's faithfulness. He's not simply saying we can lie, God can't lie. He's saying that the truth as it is in the person and the work of the Messiah stands. And God is true to that. And the Messiah is true to that. And our contradiction of that doesn't alter that. It doesn't alter the truth. It doesn't doesn't allow us to move away or to have our own personal truth. Our denial of the truth that is attested in the resurrection and enthronement of the Messiah, our denial of that, which is in the nature of the case, our formulation of our own truth, doesn't alter that truth, or the fact of its final vindication in God's purposes. That's the sense in which Jesus cannot deny himself. He is the truth. But in fact, when we deny him in the way that Paul is speaking, when there is a nonconformity, when there is a contradiction, what we are doing is, in effect, we are requiring him to deny himself. We are requiring him. We are calling him, even if we're not conscious of it. We are requiring him to reinvent himself, reinvent his work, reinvent God's purposes. That is the sense, then, saints, in which our denial of Jesus compels him to deny us. See, we naturally want to think, okay, if, 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 if I don't believe in Jesus, then when I stand before him on the day of judgment, he's going to say, hmm, you, you never came to faith in me. Okay, you go on this side. You go into everlasting hellfire or you know, whatever we, we, we think. He's going to deny us. We're going to stand before him and he's going to say, I never knew you. And there's a sense in which Jesus made that point. But he's saying Paul is getting at something more fundamental than this. If we think about this in the context of what I've been talking about today, this is not Jesus saying, I'm not going to let you into heaven. Or you're not one of my people. His denial of us is his repudiation of us as false. He is the truth. To not be conformed to the truth as it is in him is to 
is to testify to ourselves as false. Liars who contradict and oppose the truth. Notice I haven't said anything about our doctrine. I haven't said anything about how often we go to church. I haven't said anything about whether we've received Jesus as Savior. Denial is the opposite side of faithfulness. Faithfulness is the conformity of life to the truth of the new creation that's come in the Messiah. Denial is the opposite of that. By contradicting the truth in our manner of being, our way of thinking, our way of living, if not in our doctrine, we're denying the one who is the truth. And therefore, we're also denying the truth of our own human existence, our own human design, the truth of our humanness that is realized in the resurrected Messiah. He is the truth of what it is to be human. So, okay, boil all of that down to a couple closing statements. What does it look like if we say, oh, wow, okay, I hadn't thought about that. Where do I stand in relation to this thing of denial? I can boil it down as simple as this. If faithfulness is again conforming the totality of our lives to the truth of this new creation that's come in the Messiah, denial for Christians amounts to any other way of life. Religious, moral, upright, immoral, doesn't matter. This denial at bottom is the Christian life being lived in a natural way. As if new creation has not come. And it can take all sorts of forms. I'm just going to name a couple real quickly that we see. And what is the evidence of this in the church? Well, an easy one is when we think about the Christian life as a matter of reformation rather than Christiformity. Here's a new standard. Here's a way to be a better person. Polishing up the apple, getting our doctrine right, getting rid of all of our bad behaviors. The reforming of our lives as we know them, rather than the transforming of our lives, which is Christiformity, our transformation into Christ-likeness. In other words, this playing out and perfecting of this reality of new creation in our own experience. It can look like a doctrine of salvation that simply says, okay, being saved looks like being forgiven and going to heaven when I die. And I'm not saying we're not forgiven, and I'm not saying that this whole idea of heaven has no place in God's purposes. I don't think it does in the way that we tend to think. 
But so often, salvation is about me getting right with God. It's the same me getting right with God. God's not mad at me any longer. I'm not going to have to go to hell any longer. And now God's become my ally. And now I can expect blessing. I can expect life to look this way. It's the same me just waiting to go off to heaven where me can have life in the best of all possible ways. I can have it be my best life now in some sense, but my ultimate best life is when I go off to the big house and I get to do what I want to do forever, undisturbed, unperturbed. It can look like Jesus being a projection of ourselves and all of the cultural phenomena that go with that. Saints, you know, part of the problem is that we're like the fish in water that doesn't know he's wet. We don't think we have a culture, but we do. We're in it. We don't feel it. We don't think that we're affected by it, but we do. And the most narrow and most poignant and most powerful culture is us ourselves. We naturally, instinctively think that Jesus looks just like us. He thinks like us. He wants what we want. And so rather, us being conformed to this reality of new creation that is defined by him himself, the resurrected enthroned son of David, this consummate human being, if you will, we say, well, he's like me. And the church is wrestling at large. We, you know, we see this if we watch the news or we go out and about or if we visited other congregations. All this wokeism and cultural stuff that's flooding into the church, you know, whether it's the social justice stuff or you know, BLM or whatever, all of this stuff is working its way into the church. And we say that's bad, that's bad, but we don't recognize why that's happening. And it's because of the failure of us to remember Jesus, the Messiah, resurrected from the dead, son of David, and all of what goes with that. So we say, well, I'm in favor of justice, yeah. I think black people matter, yeah. We're not living as new creation people with the mind of Christ. It's just religiosity. It's churchianity. It's personally stylized conceptions of what it is to be a Christian. And ultimately, it's, it's to have God sanctify my agenda so that I can ultimately go off to a place called heaven and maybe see Jesus at the big house on Easter. But other than that, you know, I mean, I'm going to do my own thing. And I'm caricaturing, but there's a lot of truth in it. It's easy, saints, for us to recognize these, these dynamics of denial, the denying of Jesus that's present in the church. But what about in our own selves? I hope some of the things I've said today have triggered our own minds to say, what about me? Because the truth is, to, and it's a gradation, but to whatever extent we are not faithful to whatever extent we are not living out in the totality of the integrity of our lives, this new creation in the Messiah, to that extent there's denial in our lives, denying the truth of who we are, denying the truth of who the Messiah is. And it's something we all have to wrestle with. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? 
This is the battle of repentance. This is the battle of taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And I hope that we'll do business with these things. We have to bind ourselves to the truth of Jesus the Messiah and what it is to be sharers in him. And that's the sense in which you've got to become people of the scriptures. We're not looking for a self-help manual. We're not looking for propositions to give us an accurate doctrine of God or other things. What we're doing is we're, we're, we become people of the scriptures in the sense that this is where the Messiah and the truth of what God has accomplished and is accomplishing and perfecting in him, that's where by the Spirit these things are revealed. That's the sense in which we have to study and meditate and pray and labor together and worship together and strive together. And we're increasingly in a a hostile country. In many ways, it's better that that we're in a post-Christian country because we don't have as much of the nonsense of of kind of, you know, the Bible Belt, pseudo-Christianity, everybody's a Christian, I'm an American stuff. We don't have as much of that anymore. But it means that the pressure is also going to be turned up. And the contradiction of living out new creation in this world is going to turn up the heat in a lot of ways. We are all in certain ways, to a certain extent, those who are deniers of the Messiah. But the goal is to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head and to labor with one another, to have that be our mandate, our mission. As Paul said, to work, labor, strive with all of the effectual working of the Spirit, to see everyone presented complete in the Messiah. Not just get people saved so they can go off to heaven, to see everyone completed in him. To be faithful. Father, I know there's a lot to think about, and I don't know that any of this is is new. Um, It certainly shouldn't be to this congregation, but it's very easy for us to be a non-remembering people. In the busyness of life, the pressures of life, the things that we all have to deal with every day in our lives in this world, it's easy for us to lose sight of Jesus the Messiah, enthroned, ruling, reigning, laboring by his spirit to sum up everything in himself unto that day when our God will be all in all, the renewing of all things in him. That's what we're part of. That's what our vocation is. That's what our mission is. That's what we're ministers of. And I pray, Father, that you would deliver us from these things that distract us, these things that preoccupy us, these things that win our affections and that we would truly sanctify all of life, whether we eat, whether we drink, when we work, when we play, when we rest, that truly all of life would be sanctified to the ownership and the pursuit and the, and the perfecting of this new creation. That the church alone in this age is the evidence of, the truth of, If we will not be the church, there is no gospel because there is no new creation. Give us an urgency. Give us a sense of unction. Father, cause us, even in the passing of the days, I know as 
those of us who, who get older, you know, we have a greater sense that, that the years ahead are far less than the years behind. And I pray that, that even that compulsion would drive us to be a more faithful people. We don't have time to waste. We don't have lives to waste. I pray that we would all hear in that day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And may we be faithful stewards of this charge with one another. May we truly be faithful stewards of this charge with one another. In all of this, Father, we entrust ourselves, we entrust this outworking, we we entrust the consummative perfecting of these things to you. May we simply be faithful stewards of what you've entrusted to us, that Christ would be exalted in his church and in the world as you intend. Amen.